You are listening to A Taste of Romumu, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Romumu, please visit romumu.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Lila Tov, Erev Tov, hi everybody. I'm so glad you're here. And... Uh, I'm, that's all right. Uh, I'm going to begin with a chant. Um, some of you might know this, or maybe you won't, uh, but um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a water chant, and it's also a mother chant. Um, and uh, at, at um, my retreat, hi. Aw. Oh, yay. yay. Of course. Of course, you need a teddy bear. Oh, that is perfect. Okay. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so um, the words uh, are, the river is flowing, flowing and growing. The river is flowing down to the sea. Mother, carry me, your child I will always be. Mother, carry me down to the sea. Um, so it goes like this, and you can pick it up or you can just listen. Um, and this goes with our theme of the evening, which is, the Divine Mother in Kabbalistic Sources. The river is flowing, flowing and growing. The river is flowing down to the sea. The river is flowing, flowing and growing. child I will always be. Mother, carry me down to the sea. Mother, carry me, your child I will always be. Mother, carry me down to the sea. The by that one. Um, 
So let's do our ritual. Let's have names and anything you brought for our uh, our mother's space here, our altar, um, or anything you have on your mind about mothers this evening. Uh, we'll go. Why don't we start this way? We. Um, I'm Andrea, and uh, I did not bring a mother image, but that one I suddenly thought I have a picture um, on my shelf of my mother in her mother's lap. Mm. So. was a teddy bear that my mother gave to me when I was a little bit older. Did she make it? <coughs> she didn't make it, but she kind of felt as though she couldn't be doing this all the time. <laughs> I what does always, it say? It says, you're a winner, Teddy knows. <laughs> you pull it again. <laughs> it actually changes. Well, it used to change, it's, mm -hmm. but but it it gets your sentiments out. Aww. So if you ever needed a quick pick-me-up, <laughs> you know, Mom had a way of delivering it even in our absence. Wow. That is amazing. physical, but I'm going to be a total donor. A friend of mine found out, I found out a friend, a friend's father passed away today. And said friend was a very good friend to me when my mom passed away. So a lot of the moods, a lot of the memories from that particular time are, are sort of been on my mind all day. As I think, how can I be as good a friend to this friend as she was to me back then? Mm -hmm. well, thank you for bringing that, and may his memory be a blessing. Um, I didn't know what the theme was, but I felt compelled to carry this thing <laughs> somewhere during rush hour. Um, and it's from a series of trees that I carve. I dig up the whole tree myself with my bare hands. And um, it's from a series of birds um, that has to do with uh, freedom uh, and sexual expression, freedom and sexual choice and expression. And uh, uh, although I did have an image come to me when, I, when you said about the mother, um, when my mother passed away, I gathered a group of people together to come to my house which was on the country in the country and 
I went out and I did a dance on the ground thinking of the fact that she was buried in the earth. And uh, I was looking up at the stars and I had this thought of, um, uh, I, w I was looking at a star and thinking about how, you know, a star's energy, the light is actually that you're looking at, is not the actual star, it's the light that was coming from the star years and years ago. So I was thinking of my mother and I wondered if her energy was flowing out somewhere. Because she had just passed away. Where did her energy go? Was it flowing? Was that light flowing in the universe somewhere from her soul? Flying, in a sense, like this bird. And um, right at that moment when I had that thought, there was this shooting comet that was like incredible, that I had never seen one like this before. And it happened right at the instant that I had that thought. Yeah. So that really, that affected me very strongly. Cool. Thank you. Susan? Um, this is not easy for me. I don't, I don't, this is a sweet memory of my mother, the birds she brought back as a gift when she was in Italy. But I, I don't have a lot of sweet memories. And this is um, the tenth yard site this week, mm. so it's it's um, there's some important message in talking about mother tonight. And mm. it, this is the first time I ever said Kaddish for mm. her as well. Mm. So there was, you know, something about kind of who I am becoming, all that I'm sort of out being in the Ramamu community, um, but it was a very um, emotional saying in my mother and my mother's name, and so for those 10 years, and it really was the very first time that, I, you know, I think that I really felt a lot of emotion. so conflicted like you know just so many feelings around it but this is really the first time I felt real sadness still thinking about what it was that made me so sad and Friday night in particular the first time so it actually you know this morning when I left my apartment I thought I, I have her curfew tray and I have she, these she gave me as a gift and I keep them on the perfume tray and it's a sweet memory because I'm glad that I have kind of a few and that I have this treasure and that I got to be here tonight mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I'm Jane I bought uh, this one a black and white photo that's there it's a picture from about the mid-1950s. It's my mother with me and my sister. Mm -hmm. And the reason, you know, I could have picked a photo of my mother at, at any stage in her life. The reason I picked that, you, we, we can pass around if you want to, um, that um, period is, I mean, like anyone, my mother went through lots of different changes in life and at different periods in her life, different things were her priorities. 
Um, I do not think that motherhood was always a priority for her, but I am very clear that at that time in her life, with me and my sister, right then you're looking at a woman who, motherhood was her highest priority. I, I, I actually remember that feeling when I was that young. Hmm. And it's nice to remember that because, you know, other chapters came, things change in a family, of course, but no chapter negates any other chapter, they're just part of the string of these. So hmm. that seemed like the one to bring for tonight. Hmm. Thank you, Faith. Hmm. Um. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so when I looked at the Divine Mother. My mother's still alive after over a hundred years. She's still around. And when I was looking at the Divine Mother, though, there's only one image I had. And, and Jane and I, in the 90s, we had a farm, and we were breeding Arabian horses. And this bay, this beautiful bay is Serena, and she, she was our first broodmare. And then we had her bred, and then 11 months later we got Hana. And Hana, there is, she's seven days old in this picture. And just, just watching them, I just used to watch them all the time. And just walk around and be with each other. And, and, it, it, and then when Hana grew up, I got to train her and ride her and I rode her all the time and she was my was like my baby from this amazing gentle beautiful bay horse so, mm. it's very dear to me thank you oh, wow thank you all for what you brought tonight I'm really really moved this is really quite quite a collection of completely unique things and stories and very very touched Gorgeous. so yeah um so I brought I, I I should say that like maybe like some other folks here um my uh, my relationship with mother is very complicated um my uh my mother, the mother who I always knew, who raised me, and I did, have not had a strong relationship. Um, it's been very difficult. Um, and and uh, as you said, Susan, this is a this is a sweet memory. This uh, this little statue of the mother with the child. Uh, she, you know, found it in the you know the dollar section of some department store and uh you know she gave it to me on my when my uh, you know my first mother's day when my daughter was about six months old and uh i was really touched and it's also interesting to me that raya is constantly asking can she take it out of the cabinet and of course i don't want to give it to her because she can break it but uh, but she really it's of all the things in my cabinet this is the thing that she most wants to uh to play with um so uh so i, I like that it has the energy of of mother in it um, and the other thing that I brought um, is a necklace of shells uh, because, um, and I actually think it was a gift from my mother, but, uh, um, I, but I brought it really because um, it's, for me, the ocean has always been a, a mother entity. You know, I always, when, I, when I need the sense of being surrounded by something larger than me, you know, that sort of uh, oceanic 
embryonic sense, I like to go to the ocean. And that's something my father and I used to do together, actually. We used to ride the waves together and, uh, you know, still would if, uh, if I could get him out to the ocean. And um, there's something about the ocean for me that contains that energy. And, and in some ways, um, you know, I, I, I very much turn to the moon and the ocean and the woods as, as, as mothers, in a sense, when I was growing up. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm sure when somebody writes my psychological biography, they'll have a lot to say about that. But um, um, this is, anyway, that's why I brought the shells, is, is for, the, for the ocean, the ocean as, uh, as mother. Um, and the mother of our species, of course, or uh, however you want to look at that, the, the parent, the, uh, the, the origin, the first medium. I also, as we begin, want to tell the story I heard from Lane Redman of Blessed Memory. Um, I think I might have mentioned Lane in previous classes. Lane is a, was a, uh, it's new actually to say was, she died very recently, uh, was a, a percussionist who discovered um, that there was an immense history of women in percussion uh, that existed in the ancient world. And that at a certain point in history, the percussion had been sort of given into the hands of men, and women had actually been actively and sometimes even legally discouraged from drumming. Uh, and so many scholars for centuries believed that women did drum, had never drummed, like it was not something that women did in most cultures. And Lane uncovered a whole um, uh, panoply of evidence of priestesses drumming, of women drumming in, in ritual and for other reasons. Um, I hope I'm not repeating myself. I don't know if I said this before. Uh, and Lane dedicated her entire life to, to, to documenting this. And she would do things like she'd go to museums where there were statues um, and of women holding round objects like this. And the, the, the plaque on the, on the case would say, women with cakes. And it would be like, you don't hold a cake like this. You know? This is not a cake. You know? It's a drum. But you know, the, you know, the archaeologists thought that women didn't drum, so it had to be a cake. Um, so you know, she spent her whole life studying Greece and Brazil and India and you know, uncovering this whole layer of history. And she was very interested in the connection between drumming and the fetal experience. She believed that the reason that he, all human cultures drum is that the first thing that you hear as a fetus is the heartbeat. Um, and she played us the sound of a heartbeat from inside a uterus. And it was, I mean, it changed my life. It blew my mind. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I mean, it was this sort of, almost like a trombone sound, but then, you know, the, but the, the drumming rhythm, and it was just wild. And, you know, she said, we all pulse to this rhythm. This is, this is the rhythm that begins our, is the first thing that we hear. And uh, so f that was very moving. And then she said that when um, a girl fetus is formed, her, her eggs are formed while she's in the womb. So the egg that becomes you is in your grandmother's womb. You know, pulses in her rhythm, right, before it eventually becomes you. Uh, and that was really extraordinary to me to think about that link of the generations. Um, oh, okay, enjoy your simcha. Um, so I was very struck by that and just have really been thinking about that ever since. Like, what is that mammalian uterus experience you know, 
how, what is that condition in us? Uh, and uh, you know, and Lane, who uh, died very recently, drummed right up until the end. Like it was a very important part of her life, and uh, and you know she taught me and Shoshana a great deal. So uh, so I uh, I'm thinking of her as I am of all the other mothers that that you mentioned. So I want to. Um, I want to set the stage a little bit for the text that we're going to look at. I don't have so many texts tonight, although there are certainly many we could look at. Uh, but I want to set a little bit of the stage. We're now going to begin to look at the Zohar. Right, so last time we looked mostly at Sefer Habahir, right, with a little bit of the Zohar. So Zohar, 12th, 13th century Spain, right, the flowering of Kabbalah, right, the systematizing of the Jewish mystical experience. Um, probably little chavrot, little uh, groups of people who are studying together um, in mystical ways. The Zohar presents itself, unlike Sefer Habahir and unlike Sefer Yetzirah, the mystical books that predated, the Zohar presents itself as a biblical commentary. That is, it starts with Genesis and it goes forward from there. Its read of the Torah, oh, we may, oh, um, Hold on one second. Oh, hello? Hello? Oh, great. Thank you. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. That's okay. Thank you, guys. Okay. Sorry, everybody. Back to the Zohar. Mm -hmm. She's here. Um, the Zohar. So, the Zohar probably written by Moses de Leon, but attributed to Shimon Bar Yochai centuries earlier, uh, has a particular systematized way of looking at God. And it tells us about it, not in a philosopher's way, like now I'm going to tell you about my view of God, but by talking about biblical verses. And the Zohar's read on the Torah is totally different than anything that had existed prior to that. So it begins to read Bereshit bara, and it interweaves Midrashim from earlier uh, sources, uh, but really has a different take on them, such that, for example, Bereshit bara Elohim, right, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Oh, dear. Wow. <laughs> you see? What is that? It's a car it's a really loud car alarm. It's a really <laughs> close car. <laughs> I don't know quite they what to do. Up, they They'll go off, right? There's nothing you can do. Wow. Okay. Oh, Lord. <laughs> this, is, this is really hard. Okay. Um, I'm mostly worried about the... I know you guys can handle it. I'm mostly worried about the recording, but... Uh, oh, well. This is, this is how it is. Please stop. <laughs> huh? This is without Actually, since we're taking a break just for one second, yeah. do, do you know, is there any way to find that recording? Which recording? Oh, I'm really curious. Of the one that she used? I don't know. I, I, I have no really idea. Yeah, yeah, I have no idea what she used. Uh, but I'm sure you can get a recording. You can get anything online. I'm sure you can get, I'm sure you can get this. Yeah. Um, wow. So... So the Zohar begins by saying, Bereshit bara Elohim et HaShemayim In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And says, this is all about movements inside God. Right? The heavens and the earth really represent two different parts of 
you know, of God. We really represent two different aspects of God. And it goes on from there, right? Every piece of the Torah is reinterpreted. Uh, so when uh, this, there are the seven days of creation, right, these become the seven lower spherot, right? The seven lower uh, spheres of the tree of life. Um, and um, when Pharaoh's daughter's walking on the Nile, right, she becomes an aspect of the Shekhinah who's walking along and uh, she represents the, you know, the left side of, um, of, the, of the spherot. Everything is, is interpreted in light, of, um, uh, in light of what's going on inside God. Okay? So it's a very different way of reading the Torah. And uh, we're only going to be looking at teeny tiny pieces of it, but it's a wonderful book to study. So what I need to tell you in order to explain where the, where the Divine Mother image we're going to be looking at comes from is, so there are these ten spherot. I wish I'd brought a chart, um, but some of you are familiar with this. So we start with Keter at the top. Keter means crown. It refers to the point at which the, the infinite, the Ein Sof, begins to coalesce into something that can interact with the physical world. It begins, God begins to have a point of differentiation where God starts to exercise will, the will to create. Okay, that's Keter. If you're thinking about this in family terms, which they do sometimes, you can think of Keter as grandfather slash grandmother, okay? Like the, 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 the first origin. From Keter comes to Chochmah. Chochmah is, right, we talked about Chochmah as a female figure. In the Zohar, Chochmah is a male energy. It's the father energy, and it's the spark, right? So it's like the, um, it's, it's actually quite biological. I mean, if you think about like a seed, right? That's really what they're talking about. Chokhmah is like the spark of light that Jackie. creates. Exactly. That's really what it is, <laughs> right? That's what they're talking about. On the other side, so that's on the right. On the other side, on the side of, that is Bina, right? Bina is the partner and opposite of Chokhmah. Bina is the house, the palace, the womb that receives Chochmah and turns it into something. Chochmah is the idea. Bina is um, the um, development of the idea. So you can see how they understood biology, right? The male sent the seed, the female extrapolated the seed. Um, so Bina becomes the container, right? She's the womb of souls, right? From Bina, come, everything comes, right? This, so the path goes from Ketra to Chochmah and from Chochmah to Bina. Below Bina are the seven lower spherot, which are all considered to be her children. Um, so there is Chesed, right? The all-important Chesed, the force of generosity, of love, of expansion on the right side. Givura, right, which is on the feminine left side. Givura, the of constriction, of uh, boundaries, of right, holding a space. In the middle column, Tiferet, which is a male energy, which is sort of the, is the heart energy. It's the, um, the, uh, the, the Holy One of Blessing is considered to dwell in Tiferet. It's like the part of God you talk to. Below Tiferet, on the right, you have Netzach, which is getting things done, endurance, another aspect of expansion, going outward. On the left, Hod. Uh, Hod is really hard to translate. It goes, people say everything from gratitude to submission to glory to artistry. It means something like refining, 
okay? Like refining, like taking time to refine something. In the middle column, yisod, connection, connectivity, generativity, righteousness, the divine phallus, okay? And then on the bottom, malchut, shechina, right? The word that we've been using, right? So this is where shechina falls into this structure, right? From its rabbinic meaning, which we talked about in the first class, right, to its meaning in the Midrash, right, as the God's wife, whatever that means, right, now she comes into the spherotic structure and becomes the lowest sphera, which means the one that is closest to the physical world. Shekhin is considered to overlap with the physical world in a way that none of the other sphero do. She also is the one that breaks off, right, when there's damage to the spherotic tree, right, when brokenness enters the world. Right, the Shechina sort of becomes detached from the rest of the Sfirot. She uh, is sort of in exile. She becomes intertwined with dark forces. And the whole point of doing mitzvot is to fix that breakage and restore the divine couple of the Shechina and Tiferet, um, the Shechina and the Kadosh Baruch Hu. Okay, so it's all about divine union, right? It's all about divine marriage, right? If we fix the world, then these spheres will come back together. So that's the big picture. What we're going to focus on tonight is the sphira, not of Shechina, right, which, we, which we're going to talk about much more next time, but of Bina. Right, remember, right, Bina, the, the, um, the, the house, the palace, the womb that catches the divine seed. Okay. Um, so that is, and, and Bina is considered to be Bina much more often than Shechina. Shechina gets referred to as mother sometimes also. But much more often than Shechina, Bina, Bina gets referred to as mother. Shechina, you hear more bride, right? Uh, Shechina, you hear more mother. And since she's the mother of souls, right, souls come out of her into the world and they go back to her, right? They go back to, uh, they, uh, after they leave their bodies, they go back to Bina. Uh, to the extent that, I'm not sure if I put this in your package, but to the extent that the Zohar says when the Adam, the human being, was first created, what was the Adam made out of? Um, they say the body was made out of earth from the earthly temple. That means Shekhinah. Right? The Zohar is all in code. Right? So you have to know the code. But the earthly temple, that's Shekhinah. And the soul was made from earth from the heavenly temple. So that's Bina. Okay, so the idea is like the body substance comes from Shekhinah, the earth, the uh, soul substance comes from Bina. Um, and, uh, and of course, all of this derives from Keter, right? The energy is always flowing through all the spherot, and different ones of them channel it in different ways. All right, so let's look at some, so any questions or comments about that, and then we'll look at some text. Last yeah? week, we were talking about how Bina is connected to Shekhinah through Tiferet. Mm-hmm. But uh, today, I think there was someone in between. So above oh, oh, yes, Yisod. Yisod. Yisod is the connector between Tiferet and Malchut, and they understand that pretty biologically. I mean, they understand that as, like, the organ that connects Malchut and, and uh, Tiferet. Wait, what's Tiferet? Tiferet is the central sphera. It represents the male energy in the lower worlds. Um, and is the partner, is the male partner of Shekhinah, right? And Yisod is the sphira that interposes between the two of them. Like yeah, okay. absolutely. Yeah, and uh, it's, it's all body, right? All of the sphira have a body wow. part that goes with them. 
Yeah, you thought, right, you, if you thought that Judaism was boring, you know, it's really, the Zohar is full, I mean, I'm, I'm blushing, but the Zohar is full of sex. It's, that's, that was their primary metaphor for thinking about God. Like, they thought about, I mean, this is really, I mean, if you read a lot of mystics, including Christian mystics, There's like. There's so many sects like that, it's incredible, you know. What did you say? There's so many sects like that. Sex, as in S-E-C-T-S, right. Sex, all right. If you think about, well, we're, we're. So functioning with, you know, hey, it's great, but we want to take control of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this isn't uncommon. I mean, if you look at Hinduism, which has this amazing stuff about Krishna and the gopis, right, and the, you know, the, all the, the beauty of the male-female union, you know, India is not so good for women. Like, it's, unfortunately, the two don't necessarily go together. Like, um, you know, the, the Zohar has, you know, lots of interest in women as an archetype. You know, less interest in women as real people. Um, and, but what's interesting is that when there are these heretical sects that spin off of mystical, with a spin off of Kabbalah, like uh, Shabtai Tzvi and uh, Jacob, Jacob Frank, do you guys know who these guys are? So Shabtai Tzvi, I'm going to get the century wrong, 17th century, thought he was the Messiah, convinced a lot of European Jewry that he was the Messiah, a lot of people followed him to Turkey, where he was threatened with death by the government and converted to Islam, um, thus sort of you know, wrecking the whole Messiah thing. Although, a number of his followers stayed loyal, ostensibly converted to Islam, secretly remained Jews, and to this day there are Sabbateans in Israel, like who still, like, they, ha they had a very antinomian um, practice, like, for example, of eating, like, pork on Yom Kippur, eating like soup with, like chicken soup with milk in it on Yom Kippur, because they believed in the power of transgression to uh, break down the barriers between the worlds. Like, they were an antinomian mystical sect, and women were very prominent in the Sabbatean sect. They were prophetesses, they were, um, you know, they were they in a quite, exist. oh yes. I mean, the Sabbateans still exist. I mean, they're very small, but they still exist. Jacob Frank, who came along a century later, very similar, antinomian, um, took a whole bunch of Jews on a big trip, ended up crashing and burning. But um, there are still Frankists today, though not very many. You know, he was a, you know, considered a massive heretic. Also, lots of women in his circle, you know, who were, you know, given, you know, who studied with the men, who prayed with the men. And Frank actually believed in worshiping the divine feminine. Like, that was what he believed in. He believed that the feminine had been uh, pushed down and should be worshipped. There are all kinds of stories about Frankist orgies. It's not really clear if it's true or if it was made up by their detractors. Um, but the conventional wisdom about the Frankists is that they also, you know, engaged in all kinds of weird sexual practices. I don't know if it's true. It could be true. I mean, it could also be an exaggeration. Um, anyway, so, so there actually were Jewish mystical sects where women were quite prominent, um, but mainstream the, tended not to put women, but early Hasidism also had a lot of, had a number of women who were very prominent, daughters of Rebbe's who really acted as Rebbe's themselves. And then as the Hasidut became more um, solidified, um, uh, more um, hierarchical, um, that ended. 
it happened in early Christianity also. Religions where they're less um, institutionalized have more space for marginal folks, particularly for women. Uh, um, once you start to have institutions, that seems to fade somewhat. Um, so, a word to the wise: if you're founding a founding a religion, uh, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> Try to avoid institutionalization as long as possible. Uh, or a synagogue. All right. So let's. Uh, we're not discussing the politics of any particular synagogue right now. <laughs> Page 44. And I actually want to apologize. I've talked so long. We don't have a lot of time to look at these, but uh, hopefully we'll have enough time. Um, so these are both texts from the Zohar. So the first one um, is about the, is, it's actually set when the Zohar is discussing uh, the prayer, uh, right, the prayer in the evening where we say, please protect us and shelter us and keep all bad forces away from us um, and spread over us the sukkah of your peace. Right, so if you're familiar with that prayer in the evening prayer, uh, the Zohar is discussing this prayer and saying, so why, why do we have this prayer? What do we, what, what's the prayer doing? The Zohar always assumes the ritual is doing something theurgic, is making something happen in the divine realm. Um, so um, who would like to read? We ask the sukkah, we ask the sukkah. Thank you, Jane. Um, we ask the sukkah to spread itself over us and rest upon us and protect us as a mother protects her children, so that we will feel safe on every side. When Israel welcomes the sukkah of peace to their homes as a holy guest, the holy divine presence comes down and spreads her wings over Israel like a mother embracing her children. This sukkah of peace grants new souls to her children, for all souls have their home in her. Mm. Also, what have their home in her? Yeah. So this is quite lovely, right? This is really the image of the of the of sukkah. I mean, this has changed my experience of being in a sukkah. Actually, this text, the sukkah, the sukkah is a mother bird, you know, that's sort of sitting on its eggs. You know, it's sitting on its hatchlings. Um, and uh, the idea is that when we uh, talk about sukkah shlomecha, right? When we say spread over us the shelter of your peace. Right, we're actually asking the Divine Mother to come down and spread herself over us like a mother bird. Um, and I don't have the Aramaic here, so I, I, can't, I, I can't check, but I think here really the Divine Presence refers to Bina. They're really talking about the Divine Mother. Um, and she brings souls for her children. So you, you're familiar with maybe the tradition of getting an extra soul on Shabbat? Mm -hmm. You might have heard there's this um, lovely uh, tradition of that on Shabbat you get a nishama yitera, an extra soul. Have, and then on, at Havdalah, it goes away. So that's why we need the spices on Havdalah to sort of revive us because our extra soul just took off. Um, and what is that extra soul? Well, it's like smelling salts. Yeah. I wondered about that. Well, this is the source right here. This, I mean, this text. What, what? Like, is it like another person? Like, what? What do they mean by it? Yeah. Like, yeah. It's it's a little bit unclear. They don't actually really fully explain. Um, it's it's not another person. Although the Zohar does talk about people getting the souls of other people in them sometimes. Like that is something that happens according to the Kabbalists. 
Um, but the Neshama Yitera really seems to be part of us that comes to us from Shabbat. Is the, it for, like our higher soul? Yeah, we actually we have a higher soul that isn't called the Neshama Yitera, so it's uh, it's called the the Yechida. So it's 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 the Zohar is a whole section on souls that is really complex. There's actually five levels of the soul, and each one comes from a different part of God and and. Yeah, I, I actually have never really fully been able to understand what they mean by Neshama Yatera, but that's what they call it. They say it's an extra soul. You get an extra soul. Um, and um, Does this extra soul provide something for us? Is it, it an intuitive? It provide? seems to provide the ability to have extra sort of extra delightful experience on Shabbat. The idea is that your your sense, your spiritual senses are heightened. You have more ability to, maybe, maybe insight is not so bad. Uh, maybe that actually, it, it, you have more ability to, um, to, to feel and sense sort of the spiritual things that are happening. But um, it's interesting because yeah. if you're following Shabbat the way you're supposed to, you're actually abstaining from a lot of creation. Right, right. So that where you're normally involved in doing all of these things, mm -hmm. there's more blankness, if you will, mm. so that that intuitive part mm. may have actually room to blossom more mm. than when, in fact, your day is filled wow. with what you would be filling in six days a week. That's right. That makes a lot of sense to me. That makes a lot of sense to me that that they're actually by saying you get an extra soul, they're actually commenting on something they're noticing that's really happening, right? Which is that when you are not constantly engaged in your stuff, right, you are able to to open up and perceive more. That's um, beautiful. That's really beautiful. Yeah, Thanks, I love you. that. I think that's mm. Um. I remember people joking that you could you could eat all you wanted on Shabbat because your extra soul would you know would would, would, would eat it. You know? it's like your, it's like your yeah, the, the, right. The calories two. would uh, right. You're eating for two exactly. I always like that. And I actually I wrote a short story which is in Goldie Milgram's collection, Mitzvah Stories, um, where um, uh, this is based on a European folktale, um, but I added stuff to it where uh, a woodcutter is coming home after Shabbat to his house and he's very tired and he runs into a woman with a wagon full of children and the wagon is broken down she says can you fix my wagon and he's very tired but he says okay and he makes her a wooden axle um, and uh, he goes home and uh, of course as in all of these stories he's very poor and he doesn't have enough money for um, candles or you know for oil or for the latkes and he comes home and oh and and the woman gives him as a reward she gives him the broken axle and all the wood chips from the new axle, and he's like, "What good is this to me?" Um, and he gets home, and they've turned into a menorah, and you know, lots of gold coins, so he can have latkes. Um, and it turns out that this was the Shina on her way home with all the extra souls, you know. Um, so uh, that's uh, that was the story I told. So, in fact, while we're on the subject of Shabbat, let's look at the text on the bottom of page forty-four. Somebody else want to take this? You want to, Susan? Five candles were given to okay. the woman of the holy people to light. The friends have said... Could you speak up? I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Shabbat candles were given to the women of the holy people to light. 
the friends have said, because she, Eve, extinguished the candle of the world, and so forth, and that is a fine explanation, but there is a secret to these words. The Sukkot Shalom, the shelter of peace, that spreads over our Shabbat, is the Lady, Hashifina. The souls that are the candles on high dwell in her. In the role of the Lady, the woman light, and because they do this, the mother gives Sabbath souls to her children. Mm. So, they're actually doing something here that's that's really quite interesting. And and this particular midrash, this is very pop. This particular comment in the Zohar this is very popular. It gets replicated in lots of later texts. Um, so Shabbat candles are given to the women, right? So women have the particular obligation of lighting the Shabbat candles, right? If if um, right if they're there, they're, they're the ones who light the Shabbat candles in the traditional frame. And they start by quoting the Talmudic explanation for why women light Shabbat candles, which is actually not so nice, right? The Talmudic explanation is, well, because Eve put out the candle of the world, right? Eve brought death into the world, and therefore it's her job to, to she has to light all this light, right, in order to make up for the, you know, for what she did. Uh, so, you know, this, that's sort of a, you know, a little bit of a zet around, all right, well, we're giving you a mitzvah, but we're not going to give you a nice reason for doing it, you know. Um, but, and they say, and that's fine. You know, they're not going to contradict the Talmud. But then they give another explanation, a very different explanation. And what's important to understand here is that in the Zohar, whenever you're doing a mitzvah, any mitzvah, right, you're causing something to happen in the upper world. Right? So any time that you're engaged in something, right, that everything in our world has an echo in the divine world. So we have, in, in this model, in this model of the world, we have tremendous power and responsibility as human beings. Because everything that we do, right, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, right, is going to contribute basically to the health of God and the universe. You know, not just to our own, sort of our own, you know, spiritual or psychological or physical health, but to the whole cosmos, right? Everything we do is either picking up a little piece of the chips and putting it back or you know, messing another piece of it up. You know, that's how they understood things. So they're suggesting here, right, that Shabbat candles in our world have to, have to mean something in the upper world, right? It's never just something that we were asked to do, right? There has to be some activity in the divine realm that this ritual is echoing. So they say, well, what's going on in the divine realm that means that Shabbat candles have to be lit down here? They say, well, what's happening on Friday afternoon, just because, just before the, um, just before the um, candles are lit, right? Just before Shabbat begins. Well, the uh, right, the the Shechina in her role as the channel of Bina, right? The that uh, right Bina um, is making the extra souls. Right, she's creating souls. So the right, and there is this statement in the Psalms, uh, right? The soul of the human being is God's candle. So there is already this framework for understanding that the um, the candle uh, is like a soul. So by lighting Shabbat candles down here, right, you're echoing the creation of souls up there, right? We're lighting 
were creating lights, and she's creating lights. And they say, in the role of the lady, the matronita, which is one of the words that the Zohar uses for Shekhinah, or for the divine feminine. The matronita means, you know, matron. It means the lady. Um, and uh, so we, uh, so we're doing that here, so, and she's doing it there, right? So we're helping her, and she's helping us. Um, and Right, and so in the merit of this, right, she's giving us our Shabbat souls. Uh, so that's actually really quite lovely, yes. you know, as an explanation for what Shabbat candles do, right? What are they for? What are, you know, why, why, aside from the fact that you need light on Shabbat, you know, which is the original reason you lit Shabbat candles, was that you needed, a, right, or Shabbat lamps, right? You needed to have light in your house. Um, but, you know, they add this, uh, this mystical dimension to it, which is really very lovely. Yeah, so what do you guys think about that? Um, I just have to say, this is so interesting to me, because I've been reading this book, which I recommend so highly, because it's blowing my mind, called The Holographic Universe. It's an incredible book, and it talks just about this. It talks about the implicit and the explicit, and the concept of the earth, of the world, being holographic. And essentially, the mind of God, or whatever you term it, the mind of God in this book, but this energy or whatever coming into the world from in a parallel, in a parallel, in a mirror. And it's so interesting to hear this ancient, ancient text saying exactly what this, what the all the physicists are hmm. and and higher thinkers now that our scientists are talking about, about what they think of the world. Yeah. And it's mirroring this exactly. Yeah. It's phenomenal. This summer, I had the great privilege of taking a course at the Aleph Kala, uh, taught by, jointly by a Kabbalist and a physicist. Mm -hmm. And we, we were doing a very sophisticated comparison between Kabbalistic texts on the universe, on the, you know, the origin and nature of the universe, and what quantum physicists are saying about the origin and nature of the universe. You know, and although you know, they were very careful not to say anything facile, like they're the same, you know, you clearly could see tremendous resonance between what Kabbalists were saying and what the physicists were saying. And particularly, they focused on this thing called the Botsina de Cardinuta, which means the lamp of darkness, uh, which has to do with, like, the very first point of creation, um, you know, that uh, God inscribes this um, shape in the lamp of darkness that, you know, begins to, bec that becomes the world. And we were talking about um, this virtual matter that doesn't really exist, but that somehow gives rise to things that do exist, like, um, which I'm not a physicist, and I did my very best to understand it, and I can't explain it to you. I wish that I could, but, uh, but it was so amazing. And, you know, the whole notion of how things exist just... I mean, everything was just transformed because, you know, two electrons that, you know, touched each other two millennia ago were still connected and they're still vibrating together, you know, and it's uh, just amazing stuff. And, and the Kabbalah really has this very deep sense of everything being connected and, and everything resonating and, and, you know, the sense of um, there being um, sort of this, um, you know, I don't want to say dark matter. I'm misusing that term. It's like um, this underlying reality out of things out of which things arise. Mm -hmm. 
you know, that is... Oh, the space yeah. and the nothing and the something and the right. correlation between nothing and something. And, right. You know, it's like... Exactly. It's like we're so concrete, <laughs> you know, and like the physicists are just pushing all of those boundaries, whether it's light, dark, time, you know. Right, right. right. So, exactly. I'm curious, you know, these Kabbalists, how did they arrive at this information? Did, did, did they go on journeys? Did they take drugs? Yeah. Did they, what did they do? How did they, how did they access this information? Yeah. Well, this is the million-dollar question, right? Because they don't really tell us. It's pretty clear because some of what they're discussing is meditative technique, that they were going on meditative journeys. Um, I got a chance to study with Catherine Schoenberg, who is the recipient, who was a student of Madame Colette, who was a Kabbalist in Jerusalem in the last, she just died, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago, um, who was teaching meditative techniques uh, in Jerusalem. She had received them from her mother, who received them from her mother, uh, who was co connected to Isaac the Blind, who was one of these guys. Uh, and they had been passing them through the family, and for whatever reason, it eventually went to the women of the family who were, who were keeping it. Um, but the, uh, there was the meditative tradition that they believed went back to the days of these Kabbalists. Um, and what Catherine says, now, of course, all of this can, may have become garbled over time, so I can't you know, guarantee that this all really comes from Isaac the Blind. Uh, but what Catherine believes is that what would happen you know, at the time of the Zohar was that someone would quote a verse and people would begin what she calls dreaming. You know, they would begin meditating on the verse and they would say what they saw. And they would say, you know, what they experienced in meditating on that verse, and then they would write it down, you know, and uh, or they would remember it and write it down, and, and that this is how the Zohar, or materials like the Zohar, got created. Um, probably some of it was being passed down from teachers, because we know that there's a mystical tradition that, you know, starts much earlier than the Zohar. Um, but, yeah, I think they were doing, doing journeying. If they were doing, if they were using substances, they don't tell us. Like there's nothing in the text to indicate that that's what they were doing. And you don't need to, right? People can have meditative journeys without it, but that doesn't mean they weren't. So I don't know, you know. Um, but it was a very, um, it was a time that was very fertile for mysticism, for, you know, this kind of experience, you know. And uh, there were lots of different communities that were, that were very engaged in that sort of, um, I don't know what to call it, right? Shamanic journeying, that sort of um, um, visualization. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, like you can imagine the more you do it and the more you practice it, you know, so that it doesn't take them as long as it might take us, you know, to, to start right. chanting a verse and it's like, right. it's like right. you start recording your dreams and... Absolutely. It just starts being there. You know? the, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I have the same question. I mean, how, how, do, how do I do this, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and in some ways, like, they gave themselves permission to take what they saw seriously. Mm -hmm. They didn't call it imagination or, you know, I'm making it up. Mm -hmm. You know, they saw it as real. They were seeing something real. You know, I think in some ways, you know, it was about, you know, giving oneself permission to take, you know, the images that arise seriously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which, I remember yeah. taking a course with uh, David, and he said that um, the earliest Kabbalists 
to recite certain things. If you said things certain ways over a prolonged period of time, that, for lack of a better understanding on my part, you know, it, it opens doors, it opens that wormhole that, that enabled your mm. brain to right. experience things that otherwise you wouldn't. So, you know, that, that there is, if you look way back in our early tradition, people who say that if you concentrate on and say certain whatevers, that you can, in fact, facilitate right. some type of right. journey that may take you to these places. And it, it's only for the very, I, I, I don't remember exactly what it was, but, you know, you needed to, to really work at this to get to the ability to have the key to get into this door. But if you did, which evidently maybe a lot of people had during that period of time where they worked at it, that they, they right. knew it, that they were able right. to access it. Well, and we only get the 1%. Do, do you know what I mean? You know, it's like a hundred years from now, people might look back at basketball players. You know, not everyone's a Michael Jordan. Right. You know, it takes tens of thousands of kids playing basketball to get, you know. Right. We're getting the cream of the experience. Right. 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 Mm -hmm. But they also had technologies for, you know, for making this happen. I mean, all this stuff about, you know, repeating letters and combining letters and I... I it's like, this makes no sense. And then finally, I sat and tried it with my rabbinical students, and it works. You know, it's, it's mantra-like. You know, you are, you know, in a, you know, a zone, and, you know, your conscious mind is being taken up with, you know, letter combination, and stuff starts to happen. You know, it's, uh, um, I mean, really, chanting can, you know, can, can bring you to a similar place. Um, drumming was a um, you know very important technology for creating. Uh, uh, Lane Redmond used to talk about. I think they were called either beta or theta waves. Like the brain actually goes into a different state. Yeah. You know, it's more like a dream state. Mm -hmm. right. So it, it was the shift to you know more rabbinical whatever the conflict between. This more Kabbalistic and the Don't think of it as a conflict. They didn't think of it as a conflict. They didn't think of it as a conflict. These were normative Jews. It wasn't like they were going off and saying, oh, we're done with rabbinic Judaism, we're doing mystical Judaism now. They, they went to shul, they observed halakha. These were normative Jews. They were just also having transcendent experiences. Mm -hmm. um, but it seems like, at least nowadays, people are very focused, I mean, most like Orthodox Jews or whatever. I, I don't even know. Forgive me because I'm having a judgment that I actually have no information. But there seems like people are focusing on the law and the behavior and this, and not on the mystical experience. It's not it's true of every community. I mean, there are there are Orthodox sects that are extremely focused on mysticism, just maybe not in the way that you would or that we are aware of. I mean, I I often get a kick out of hearing Rabbi David share some of his experiences of being in yeshiva and. They were teaching meditative techniques, which I would never have occurred to me that they were teaching yeshiva, but that was what they were teaching. You know, I had also a very similar, I think, view of what happens in yeshiva. Um, but in fact, uh, and, and I think to some extent what you're saying is true, you know, that there are, you know, there are communities that are much more focused on halakha than on this sort of experience. Uh, but a lot of the important Kabbalists today are, you know, are orthodox, you know, and they're, and they're bringing these traditions forward. Uh, I tend to learn from more liberal teachers. Like I'm just find that more sympathetical with what I 
am up to, but uh, if you go to the Kabbalah day at the JCC, a lot of the people that they bring are Orthodox Jews. Uh, so I think, you know, that's, that's a good thing to note. But we have to go back to the Divine Mother, guys. Um, at, at some point, we have to, you know, cosmically, but uh, I, I just, <laughs> right now, I just mean, you know, I just mean in terms of topic. Um, so if you go to page 45, in a minute I want to meditate, but I want to, I want to show you a couple of uh, quotes very quickly. So Chaim Vital, um, 17th century Svat, um, oh, actually a lot of places, but you know, mainly, uh, he was the most important student of Isaac Luria. Um, so Lurianic Kabbalah is a whole other animal. Isaac Luria was a mystical genius who basically did a whole other number on the Zohar. He was the one who came up with the idea of the four worlds, right? Uh, he divided the universe into the world of spirit, mind, heart, and body. Um, he basically added a whole new layer onto Kabbalah. Uh, he didn't write. He just looked at you and told you, like, all your past lives. But, like, he didn't write. His student, Chaim Vital, wrote. So that's how we know what Luria said. Um, and, but Vital himself was um, very dedicated to meditative experience. Um, by the way, Joseph Caro, just in terms of stereotypes, Joseph Caro, who wrote the Shulchan Aruch, right, who wrote the most important code of Jewish law, was a Kabbalist. He talked with the Shechina. He had a Magid, which means he had a familiar spirit who talked to him. Um, like, so if you think that the guys who were into law were not into mysticism, mm -mm. yeah, yeah. Um, so Chaim Vital, um, who, by the way, had a, a female dream work companion. Uh, there was a woman named Rachel Eberlin in Svats who created salons for Kabbalists, um, and uh, he, she and Vital used to interpret each other's dreams, and he writes about it in his diary, so that's how we know well, about that's her. That's what you need to do, Jill. Mm -hmm. That's what you need to do. What do I need to do? Salon for the dream. Well, what do you think we're doing? <laughs> just, just no coffee. <laughs> Okay, so this is a little quote from Vital. There's lots more to say about him. Um, so he is describing here a vision that he had. He would often describe his visions in his diary. Um, and he writes, Behold a dignified woman, beautiful as the sun, standing on top of the ladder. And I thought in my heart that she was my mother. So he's seeing, like, the Jacob's ladder, and on the top there's this beautiful woman who looks like the sun, and he says, oh, that's the divine mother. Um, so this was a, not only a figure of, um, who was important to him in terms of text, but this was something he was actually experiencing. It was part of his spiritual life. Um, and I included two modern quotes I wanted to read to you because um, I just think it's important to know that this is something that is, is important to people today. And of course I could have quoted folks from all over the world, but these are both Jews. Rami Shapiro, uh, you guys may know him, is a very prolific reform uh, rabbi who writes on just about everything. Uh, he wrote one book on uh, the Divine Feminine, and he writes about his personal devotion. I've spoken to him about this, his personal devotion to the Divine Mother. Um, and he writes, I began to see her everywhere, and worse, she started talking to me. She intruded on my meditation and prayer time and just would not leave me alone. 
I shared what was happening to me with my friend and teacher, Andrew Harvey, a devotee of the mother in all her forms. The mother is chasing you, he said, and you must surrender to her. So I've actually had the experience of the divine mother chasing me, so <laughs> I know what he's talking about. Um, and this last quote is from a student of mine in the Kohen uh, Institute program, and she is a... Um, uh, she's a mystic. I mean, she is someone who really has um, deep mystical experience. She's someone who doesn't go out very much. She has a lot of physical disabilities uh, that really prevent her from leaving her house. Uh, so a lot of what she does is ritual. Um, and uh, this is a, her description of one of her, um, one of her experiences. She says, I'm journeying into the void, which is not a scary place, because it is the great womb of a mother, where I can just let go and float in the safety and love of knowing I am exactly where I need to be. So I want to just note, I didn't bring, I should have, but I didn't bring quotes from Alicia Ostriker's The Volcano Secrets, where she talks about the Divine Mother, and it's not pretty. I mean, she talks about the Divine Mother as having newspapers and fish crammed in her ceiling, and she's crazy, and you can't talk to her, and she doesn't remember who you are. And, you know, she's actually processing some of her experience of her own mother at the end of her life. Um, but she mixes it with her experience of the Divine Mother. Um, and so she has this very... Um, uh, ambivalent portrayal. Like there's this one where she's riffing on Alvino Malkinu, our, my fa our father, our king. And she says, I had a dream where you were running away and I was little and I was in my red coat and uh, my mother, my queen, I was trying to catch you. You know, and so she describes the experience of, you know, chasing this, you know, divine being who's running away. Um, and they're... Um, there is a particular moment. I actually wrote an entire paper on her theology in this book, because it, which is going to be published at some point, because I was just so fascinated by what she wrote. And one of the things that she wrote was, um, and she's uh, talking about her, uh, you know, having to become her mother's mother, right? Having to take care of her mother in her old age as if she's the mother. And she says to her, um, you know, even when I'm going to cry. Wow, I really am going to cry. Um, she talks about you know, feeling it that it's too late. And she says, even, you know, when the rain hisses against the window, too late, too late, I myself must decide it's not too late. You know, and she talks about her having to transform her own very complicated relationship with her mother at the end of her life when her mother can't even really talk about it with her, you know, to, uh, to somehow, you know, shift her relationship to that relationship. And she connects that to her relationship to God. You know, and her sense of, you know, also, like, even though it looks like it's too late, right, everything is spoiled, I have to, right, I have to invest the energy in saying it's not too late, right, I, I, that I can still, um, I can still make a positive difference to the world, I can still have a relationship with God. Um, you know, even though God appears to have abdicated responsibility for the universe, right, I have to, somehow I have to continue to invest in this relationship. Um, so I found that I really recommend the book, The Volcano Sequence. Um, it's just a, an incredible modern exposition of what a theology of the Divine Mother could look like, and very complex and not not romanticized. It's called The Volcano Sequence by Alicia Ostriker. So can you say another word about the echo, um, that our actions echo? Yeah. The phrase that they use in the Zohar, I mean, I'm calling it an echo, but the phrase that they use is as above, so below. 
right? Everything above is below and everything below is above. So, um, so they certainly see interpersonal stuff as part of that. But, but mostly what they're talking about is, right, the cosmic world has um, qualities, has divine radiance and effluence and has brokenness that we can't perceive with our five senses. Right? Actually, we have seven, but we can't perceive with our senses. Like we have, but we have to somehow be in tune with this truth. And our actions have to be in tune to heal right, that sort of that hidden brokenness that's really a part of our world, but it's in a part of our world that we can't see. Right? That's, that was really their genius innovation, right? that they were going to relate to the world. Right? The people who invented this theology were living, uh, you know, living at a very dangerous time in Jewish history, right? um, where Jews were being expelled from, uh, from Spain. Um, you know, the world was scary, right? and they were choosing to say, the world looks very scary, right? the world is broken, I choose to believe that I can make an impact on this. Like, I choose to believe that my actions, however small, right, are somehow contributing to, to healing. Um, it's really, uh, I think it's really very powerful, you know, what they chose to do. Okay. So, I would like to take a couple of minutes to, uh, to be in meditative space. So I hope that all the talk about, you know, the, I hope we haven't put too much pressure on anybody. I don't actually expect you to compose the Zohar. Just the yeah, yeah, I'm going to do that. Yeah. And I'm actually in this meditation going to be a little inspired by Judith's tree here. And by all the mothers. And even by the petty bear. <laughs> you to be in whatever posture allows you to go into a deeper place. You'll probably want to close your eyes. Just staying with the breath for a minute. And with each breath, Coming closer and closer to this moment, to full presence here. I invite you to imagine that you're walking in a forest. There are trees all around. You're walking on a path through this forest, any forest. And looking at the trees and feeling the earth beneath your feet. you come to a clearing and in the middle of the clearing 
is a tree. Any tree you imagine. And there's something special about this tree. You can feel a great deal of energy, of light, of power, however you understand, however you feel it, coming from this tree. And it draws you closer, and you begin to walk closer. And as you do, you see that some of the roots of the tree are a little bit above the ground, as roots sometimes are. And among the roots, there's a hole, a kind of door. And you come closer, and you enter, and you find yourself in a passageway that goes down among the roots of the tree. And you follow the passageway down, curling among the roots of the tree. Feeling the radiance of the tree even in the soil, feeling it in the roots. And you come at a certain point to a room, a room that feels quite comfortable. And you sit down in this room, and you rest here. You rest in the peace of this place and you listen and you begin to hear something like a heartbeat. When you listen more closely and you hear the heartbeat. And you stay here, in this place, with the heartbeat of the world all around. And you feel your own body, your cells, vibrating with this rhythm. And as you resonate with this rhythm, you feel a healing taking place.
you feel the embrace of this place. And you breathe in the rhythm and the healing and the love that is here. And maybe you even feel the invisible arms that embrace you here. Hearing the heartbeat. Eventually the heartbeat begins to become a little bit quieter. And at some point you have the sense that it's time to begin to travel back upward through the passage. And offering your gratitude for having been in the chamber at the heart of the world. You begin to take the passage up through the roots toward the sunlight. And as you wind your way upward, you come to the door that leads outward to the clearing, to the tree, and you pause at the door. There is something here for you, something the mother left here for you. Receiving the gift. You come out into the sunlight And you look up into the branches of the tree. And you see the green flowering. And you see that there are places where the tree has been wounded or struck by lightning, but the tree keeps growing. Put your hand on the tree and you feel the same rhythm, the same heartbeat. Now thanking the tree, walking away through the clearing. Looking back. What do you see? What does the tree look like now? And facing forward again, you walk on the path among the trees until you find yourself back here.
And coming back to this time and place, return to the breath. Noticing the breath and allowing yourself to become grounded here and now. And slowly beginning to open your eyes. I'm going to come back to this room. everybody. So it's 8.30 and we all have to go, but I wonder if a few people might be willing to share a sentence about something they felt or something they saw, a sentence or two, just so that we have a little, little horse spice of uh, where everybody went. I noticed when I was walking back mm -hmm. feel safe there. Mm. Mm. I relate to that for sure. Mm. We used to go to the West Coast. My sister has a house in Manzanita. And uh, on that drive from Portland, Oregon to the coast, there was a great tree that we would stop at every year. It was a Sitka spruce, mm -hmm. and it had trees growing from limbs of the tree. Mm -hmm. And it was enormous, and uh, one year we went out and it was dead. And uh, it's mm -hmm. like, and we used to go there every year and just sort of look at, it's so strange, you'd park and just look at a tree. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a really incredible tree. So I went back to the living Sitka spruce. Mm -hmm. Down to the 
Shut